This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is episode 205 of the program. Today is Friday, August 9th, and before we get started, I want to take some time to thank all of our newest Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members, all of which signed up for the first time to support us this week or increase their monthly pledge if they were already supporting us. And that includes Bayar Dejako, Buddha Shenglong, Craig McLemore, David Bedford, David Blitz, David Soul, Deanne, Diane, Douglas Pike, Gerard Mijerez, Jerry Connor, J.C. Urbina, John Sheed, Jeremiah Hedberg, Kaylin Mitchell, Louis Keith, Louis Alberto Nina, Matt, Megan Smith, Nathaniel Bloom, Nelson Shendow, Nubon Ely, Pat Brown, Patrick, Randy Stimson, Shan, Skype Barkschat, Stacy Solano, The Progressive Voice, and Tom Herb. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show, you can do so by going to humanistreport.com support or by checking out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. So this week on the Humanist Report podcast, we'll talk about the tragic shootings that took place in El Paso and Dayton, who the Republican Party is now blaming for that. Spoiler alert, it is video games this time. And we'll also talk about Bernie Sanders' response to the horrific tragedy. Tucker Carlson calls white supremacy a hoax days after white supremacists committed an act of terror. Bernie Sanders went on Joe Rogan's podcast, so we'll talk about what he said there. We'll talk about how many billionaire donors each 2020 candidate has. Mike Gravel officially ends his 2020 presidential campaign. Tulsi Gabbard talks about Medicare for All and private health insurance. A diabetic man unfortunately died because he purchased more affordable insulin in order to save money for his wedding. And finally, we will close the week by talking to 2020 congressional candidate Lauren Ashcroft of New York's 12th congressional district. So that's what we've got on the agenda for today's episode. Um, you know, not the funnest episode. A little bit more sad topics um, because that's just, you know... That's what happened this week. I can't dictate the news cycle. Last week was a lot of fun with the Democratic Party debates. This week, it's just a really sad news cycle. So we'll get through it together because, um, you know, there's nothing else you can do. Just kind of be in this together and try to digest everything together. So let's do it. So over the weekend, not one, but two mass shootings occurred within the span of 24 hours, less than a day, in fact. And this left 29 people dead and more than 50 injured. And I wish that I could say this is surprising, but unfortunately, mass shootings, you know, they're a regular phenomenon in the United States of America where we absolutely refuse to do anything about it, regardless of how frequent these things are becoming. Now, when it comes to the incidents, one of them, the one that occurred in El Paso, Texas, was in fact a white supremacist terror attack. He opened fire in a Walmart and he killed 20 people, injured 26, 
and the second one occurred in Dayton, Ohio, and a terrorist opened fire outside of a bar, killing nine, injuring 27, and he did all of this damage within about 30 seconds. Now, we don't necessarily know what the motivations were for the second killer, but we do know that in El Paso, Texas, he was a white supremacist who was fearful of immigrants. Now, if you're wondering why someone would go this far and take their fear of immigrants to this level and carry out a terror attack, you know, to send a message. Well, part of it is that we have a white supremacist president. That's just a fact. And as David Shanzer of The Guardian writes, Trump has launched his 2020 re-election campaign this summer by doubling down on the theme of racial and ethnic division and anti-immigrant hysteria. And as sure as the sun rises in the east, a mere month into this racially charged atmosphere, an extremist suspect, fearful of Hispanics gaining political power in Texas, decided to go kill as many Hispanics as possible at an El Paso Walmart. It is Trump-inspired terrorism yet again. The manifesto, the El Paso Paso shooter posted online reflects that he understood and endorsed the president's political program to a T. The attack, the shooter wrote, was in response to the Hispanic invasion of Texas, echoing the president's logic that cruel conditions of confinement will deter migration. The shooter opined that his use of violence would provide a needed incentive for Hispanics to return to their home countries. His violent actions were necessary, he wrote, to save America from destruction. Now, in this terrorist's manifesto, he says that, you know, he was worried about immigrants before Donald Trump. Although, when you have the leader of this country using white supremacist rhetoric on the regular, of course, that emboldens people like this. Now, you can draw a link between Donald Trump's rhetoric and the rationale that this shooter used to carry out this attack. In fact, not too long ago, Donald Trump at a rally was using this invasion rhetoric, which was rhetoric used in the manifesto of this shooter, and listen to what one of Donald Trump's audience members shouted when he was talking about what we can do about immigrants. When you see these caravans starting out with 20,000 people, that's an invasion. I was badly criticized for using the word invasion. It's an invasion. But how do you stop these people? You can't. There's no... That's only in the panhandle you can get away with that statement. He didn't condemn it, he laughed it off, made light of it. Rather than unequivocally saying, no, violence is not the answer, Donald Trump did not do that. I was badly criticized for using the word invasion, but how do you stop these people? When the crowd member yelled, shoot him, the auditorium erupted in laughter. You can see his own supporters laugh. There was a child in the audience just absorbing all of this white supremacy, and Donald Trump couldn't be bothered to condemn that. Now, as Brandon Friedman points out, included in the shooter's manifesto are the exact same talking points, the same type of rhetoric that we see from 
white supremacists like Donald Trump, along with other white supremacist right-wingers. So, for example, Trump frequently uses the word invasion to describe immigration. Well, so did the terrorist. Trump claimed that Democrats want open borders. Well, so did the terrorist. Tucker Carlson talks about immigrants replacing us. So did the terrorist. So this isn't a coincidence. That terrorist probably already was predisposed to be racist, but when he hears his white supremacist sentiment echoed by our white supremacist president and white supremacists in the mainstream media like Laura Ingram and Tucker Carlson, well, this legitimizes his thoughts. You know, if you are feeling as if you're fearful of immigrants, do you believe that that individual would be more or less likely to carry out a terror attack like the one that he did if we didn't have a president and media that was constantly fear-mongering about immigrants? It's disturbing. It is absolutely disturbing. What we are witnessing is America slowly but surely become more fascistic. We're being openly hateful against people who we deem the other and the cruelty that we exercise against them is justified because they're invading us. We're being replaced. So when we lock them in cages like animals, that's justified because if we be really cruel to them, if we carry out these terror attacks and target immigrants, well, you know, that may deter others from coming. This is what's happening. And it, it makes me nauseous to see all of this. It makes me nauseous. And, you know, now that it's convenient, of course, Donald Trump, you know, after going on a racist tirade against the squad, against Elijah Cummings, now he's condemning hatred. The shooter in El Paso posted a manifesto online consumed by racist hate. In one voice, our nation must condemn racism, bigotry, and white supremacy. These sinister ideologies must be defeated. Hate has no place in America. Hatred warps the mind, ravages the heart, and devours the soul. So hate has no place in our country after he's been promoting racism and throwing red meat to the base, getting them fired up by targeting members of Congress who are minorities, telling them to go back to their countries when they're American citizens. Take it from him. He knows how bad racism is. It's just laughable. He espouses white supremacist talking points on the regular. And then as soon as the rhetoric that he uses frequently manifests into violence, which is inevitable, well, then he gets to pretend to be a good guy and speak out against racism and white supremacy. Now, I'm not saying that he shouldn't condemn white supremacy and racism, because of course he should. But obviously, what needs to be the takeaway? He needs to stop fucking using white supremacist rhetoric. He needs to stop being a white supremacist. And if he actually cared about the country, he would resign in shame. I 
I mean, I, I don't know what to say anymore. I don't know what to say. The president is a white supremacist. He uses white supremacist talking points. Mainstream news, they fearmonger about immigrants, talk about how horrible the country is becoming because of immigrants. And then when these things happen, everyone acts like they're all shocked and acts like, you know, this is just so appalling. Why would anybody do this? Hmm, I wonder why somebody would do this. If you are just beaten over the head with, you know, how horrible immigrants are and how they're invading the country and how cruelty is justified because it's a form of deterrent, what do you think is going to happen? Now, predictably, you know, everyone talks about thoughts and prayers, and there's probably not going to be any action because the NRA has the Republican Party in a chokehold, and every single Republican Party politician knows that their careers depend on maintaining the status quo, and they know that if they vote for anything short of pure gun anarchy, they will have an opponent in the next election that will be bankrolled by the NRA, so they know that they have to toe the line, they have to talk about, you know, maybe it's mental health, maybe it's video games, maybe it's Jesus lacking in schools. But, I mean, we all know, we know exactly what the problem is. The United States has more guns per capita than other modern countries, and we also, consequentially, have more gun violence. This isn't difficult to figure out, we know what it is, but it's just a matter of, will we take action? The answer is probably going to be no. And... On top of that, we can't just talk about guns, we also really need to talk about white supremacy because domestic terror attacks by right-wingers, they are disproportionately the cause of politically motivated violence in this country. They carry out the most terrorist attacks. So we have to have an open and honest conversation about white supremacy in this country and we have to talk about that and guns simultaneously and fellow youtuber Cristo Avalis I think put it best we need to have this holistic discussion the discussion cannot just be about white supremacist terrorism or gun control they have to be intertwined because I think that's incredibly important a, a discussion totally about white supremacist terrorism without talking about gun control doesn't remove a weapon from the people who want to do harm conversely talking about gun control in a sanitized environment, a.k.a. all these individuals are shooting people, and we have to stop the individuals from shooting people, fails to recognize the, the deep context here. That's exactly it. We have to take white supremacy very seriously. So when we hear the president and a Fox News pundit using white supremacist language and talking points and rhetoric, we have to call it out and we have to call it what it is, white supremacy. We can't beat around the bush. You have to name it and you have to shame it. Call it out. This is our responsibility. On top of that, what we have to do is whenever our peers vocalize concerns about immigrants, whenever they parrot talking points that they hear from the president and Fox News, we have to educate them because it's more convenient to blame immigrants and blame all of your economic problems on them than to actually really diagnose the problems in this country accurately. So, I don't know what to say. Like everyone, you know, my heart is broken. And it's just, it's not shocking. I wish I could say that it's shocking that this occurred, but it's not shocking. It's shocking to nobody. You know, um, mass shootings in this country, they're inevitable. You know, they're as inevitable as the sun coming up the next day. 
The question is, when are we going to take action? The answer is, who knows? So predictably, whenever there is a mass shooting in this country, Republicans always twist themselves into pretzels, trying to blame anything and everything but the actual cause. Guns. And rather than talking about gun control, rather than talking about what's fueling these domestic terror attacks, white supremacy, they talk about everything but the actual causes of violence. And there's always one scapegoat in particular that emerges. This time, though, it seems like the main scapegoat is video games. So here's Donald Trump saying that video games are probably the cause because they glorify violence. We must recognize that the internet has provided a dangerous avenue to radicalize, disturb minds, and perform demented acts. We must shine light on the dark recesses of the internet and stop mass murders before they start. The internet likewise is used for human trafficking, illegal drug distribution, and so many other heinous crimes. The perils of the internet and social media cannot be ignored and they will not be ignored. We must stop the glorification of violence in our society. This includes the gruesome and grisly video games that are now commonplace. It is too easy today for troubled youth to surround themselves with a culture that celebrates violence. We must stop or substantially reduce this, and it has to begin immediately. So according to Professor Trump here, it's not guns. It's not white supremacy that's fueling these types of mass shootings and domestic terror attacks. It's video games because they glorify violence. I mean, of all people, to talk about the glorification of violence, Donald Trump is probably the last person that I want to hear from on this issue. The last person. The man just had a military parade. He bragged about how the U.S. military is so powerful that he could wipe Afghanistan off the face of the earth within 10 days. He's locking human beings in cages in order to deter other immigrants from coming here. He nearly bombed Iran just about a month ago. But now he's talking about the glorification of violence? I mean, everything has been turned on its head. Up is down, left is right. He's talking about the glorification of violence? Really? Of all people, Donald Trump is now supposedly concerned with the glorification of violence? What a fucking moron. If you are a Donald Trump supporter, how can you defend this? How do you not recognize the inherent hypocrisy in what he just said there? Video games glorify violence, says the president, who keeps wanting to increase our military budget, says the president, who won't stop selling weapons to Saudi Arabia, which they're using to bomb children in Yemen. Unfucking believable Unbelievable. Now, Trump is not alone, because there are other Republicans who are also saying, 
It's not the guns. It's not white supremacy. It's the video games. What are your thoughts on that in terms of understanding that words matter and that when we're talking to each other on social media or looking at video games where they're using, you know, uh, uh, videos of, uh, of characters with these uh, weapons, is there a conversation to be had about that, about the tone that, that this country is using? It's become commonplace to say whatever you want to anybody on social media. I think we should. And you, you want to see from these individuals what, what they wrote in others, but I mean, um, this may be a place that we could find this ahead of time. There may be a place of what, what's being written um, can be changed, could be an indication that an individual needs help and others that we can stop. But, but the idea of these video games to dehumanize individuals, to um, have a game of shooting individuals and others, I've always felt that is a problem for um, future generations and others. Uh, we, we've watched from studies shown before of what it does to individuals. Say, how long are we going to let, for example, and, and ignore at the federal level particularly, where they can do something about the video game industry? You know, in this manifesto that we believe is from the shooter, this manifesto, he talks about living out his super soldier fantasy on Call of Duty. We know that uh, the video game industry is bigger than the movie industry and the music industry combined. And there have been studies that say it impacts people and studies that says it does not. But I look at the common denominators as a 60-some-year-old father and grandfather myself. What's changed in this country? We've always had guns. We've always had evil. But what's changed where we see this rash of shooting? And I, and I see a, a video game industry that, that teaches young people to kill. Now that last guy who you heard from, He's actually the lieutenant governor of Texas, and another reason he cited for these mass shootings and the frequency of them, perhaps it's due to a lack of prayer in schools. These are not serious people, but we bring them on television and Fox News, and we treat them as if they're serious people. These are not serious people. These are disingenuous individuals who are running interference for the gun lobby and white supremacy. That's what this is about. And they talked about studies, but notice how they didn't cite a specific study. Okay, you say that there are studies that indicate that there's a link between violence and violent video games. Name them. Cite these studies. They didn't cite these studies because this is an assumption that is absurd on its face. It's moronic. Because out of all the countries that have video games, where video games are incredibly popular, why isn't there more gun violence in South Korea and Japan? Why do video games only ostensibly promote violence or cause violence due to the glorification of violence, supposedly, in the United States? I mean, the logic doesn't make sense there. And understand how they never extend that logic to violent movies. Why? Because they probably enjoy violent movies themselves. So because they're ignorant about video games, probably don't play video games, never played video games, it's easy for them to scapegoat video games because that's more easier than addressing the actual root causes of gun violence in this country. They don't want to talk about guns because the NRA pays them not to. They don't want to talk about white supremacy because they know a large portion of their base, they are white supremacists and they have to continue to stoke the fears about immigrants if they want to get elected. But video games are not 
to blame here. And I can say that with certainty because I am actually not pulling that out of my ass. A study conducted by the University of Oxford found no link between violent video games and aggression in teenagers. Furthermore, a study by professors Cunningham, Engelslaughter, and Ward found that video games may actually reduce crime and that wider availability of video games is actually correlated with less crime because it's almost like having a hobby having something that makes you happy makes you less likely to commit crime basic logic basic common common sense but because these people are disingenuous actors here they're bad faith actors they don't want to address the root causes of the problem here they refuse to talk about guns they refuse to talk about white supremacy. So let's talk about everything else. Let's talk about how banning prayer in schools is, you know, part of the problem. And that led to mass shootings. These are not serious people. These are not the grown-ups in the room. In an interview with Jake Tapper on CNN, Bernie Sanders reacted to both of the mass shootings that occurred over the weekend. And I want to play what he has to say, because in times like this... You know, this is where we especially rely on leaders and leadership. This is where, you know, we're supposed to hear from people who tell us what we need to hear and what we want to hear at times like this, things that are comforting to hear, you know? So I think that that's important psychologically for all of us because it helps us to recover faster and it gives us a little bit of a focal point. What should we be focusing on? Um, and that's why... I'm going to let you hear from Bernie because I think that he says things that a leader should be saying in a time like this. Uh, you tweeted just a few minutes ago, quote, Mr. President, stop your racist, hateful and anti-immigrant rhetoric. Your language creates a climate which emboldens violent extremists. Could you elaborate on, on more uh, what you mean by that tweet? Look, I am sure that President Trump does not want anybody in this country to go around shooting other people. But what he has got to understand is that when you have language that is racist, that is virulently anti-immigrant, there are mentally unstable people in this country who see that as a sign to do ter terrible, terrible things. So I think the president has got to stop that racism and that xenophobia immediately. Uh, second of all, um, Jake, uh, I think the issue of the moment is whether the NRA will continue to determine gun policy in America, despite the fact that the overwhelming majority of the American people, gun owners and non-gun owners, want common sense gun safety legislation. So what I have asked Mitch McConnell, Republican leader of the Senate, bring us back to Washington, end the recess right now, and let us sit down and work on the kind of legislation uh, that we need. Uh, the truth of the matter is the, the American people uh, want to expand uh, background checks. They want to end the so-called gun show loophole. Uh, they want to, in many cases, ban assault weapons. And my own view is we may want to be thinking about treating assault weapons the same way we treat machine guns today, having very strict license requirements for them. Uh, we want to make sure that we end the process by which people can legally walk into a gun show, buy all of the guns that they want, and then sell those guns uh, to criminal uh, elements. Uh, so there's a lot to be worked on. But I think the American people are sick and tired 
of the NRA determining gun policy in America. So I don't have much to add, but what he's saying here is apt. You know, Donald Trump, I don't believe that he wants people to do these types of domestic terror attacks, but what he doesn't realize, or maybe he does realize and just doesn't care, is that by using that rhetoric, by constantly, you know, fanning the flames against immigrants, that's a direct consequence. You can't have it both ways. You can't continue to use white supremacist rhetoric and not expect instances of violence to occur with a greater frequency. You just can't. But Donald Trump does not care because he's a white supremacist. So this all comes naturally. And also, you know, let's be real. I think that this is to a degree a political calculation because since he started his 2020 campaign, he really upped the ante uh, when it comes to just being openly xenophobic and racist. We've seen the attacks on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar. We've seen the attacks on Elijah Cummings. And, you know, this is a result of that. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Unfortunately for Donald Trump, though, he's not the one who is coming out horribly. He may look bad when people, you know, use his words as a jumping point to do horrible things, but it's the people who were affected by this who have to suffer. Because we have politicians in this country that uh, they know that it will be much more likely that they will be electorally successful if they throw red meat to the base and fearmonger about immigrants, scapegoat immigrants. Now, Bernie Sanders talks about the NRA. He talks about the specific legislative things we can do to curtail violence. And he kind of makes the point that YouTuber Krista Wavelis makes that, you know, you've got to talk about white supremacy and you've got to talk about violence because, you know, people use guns to carry out these types of terror attacks. But what's fueling them is white supremacy. So we have to address white supremacy and we've got to tackle it head on. We've got to talk about it, bring it to light. And don't just beat around the bush. Name and shame the people who are doing this. Otherwise, you know, we're lying to ourselves. We're lying to the American people. People need to be educated. What we are seeing from the president is white supremacy because he is a white supremacist. Don't be afraid to call racism racism. This is exactly what it is. Now, another portion of this clip that I wanted to talk about is when Bernie Sanders responded to whether or not Donald Trump is a white supremacist because it goes, you know, right along with what I'm saying here. One of your 2020 rivals, uh, Congressman Beto O'Rourke, told me this morning that he believes President Trump is a white supremacist um, or a white nationalist. Do you agree? I do. Look, and it gives me no pleasure to say this, but I think all of the evidence out there uh, suggests that we have a president who is a racist, who is a xenophobe, uh, who appeals and is trying to appeal to white nationalism. Uh, and, you know, it breaks my heart to have to say uh, that this is the person we have who is president of the United States. Now, again, I want to emphasize that what he said there is really important. Donald Trump is a white supremacist. 
We have to call it like we see it and what it is factually speaking. White supremacy is white supremacy. And Donald Trump is a white supremacist. And when Bernie Sanders, you know, he just directly says Trump is a racist, he's a xenophobe, he's a bigot. This is important. It's important that you call racism, racism, xenophobia, xenophobia, and white supremacy, white supremacy. Because what Republicans have done is they've made it socially unacceptable to call out racism. Like, if you're going to speak out against racism, you have to avoid calling someone racist. You have to avoid using the R word, racism. But if you refuse to call out racism and white supremacy for what it is, you're letting them win. You're letting them win. You know, this is the same thing I remember back in around 2010, 2011. The National Organization for Marriage you know, run by Maggie Gallagher at the time, was saying, look, we're against same-sex marriage, but that doesn't make us homophobic. We don't believe that gay people are inferior to us. We just don't believe that marriage should be between, you know, two men or two women. And they didn't like being called homophobes when that's what they were because that made them look bad. Nobody wants to be lumped in with bigots and racists. And now, if you're against same-sex marriage, it's almost undisputable. You're a homophobe, right? So, at the time, Republicans were saying the same thing. Don't let them call you a homophobe just because you think that gay people shouldn't be allowed to get married. We're seeing the same thing now with regard to racism. Oh, what's that? You're against illegal immigration? And now you're suddenly racist? I mean, don't play into their games. These are not honest actors. These are bad faith actors. And they are scapegoating immigrants because they want you to blame them for all of the economic problems that their policies are creating. That's what this is about. So when Donald Trump is called a white supremacist, not only is that accurate, it's important. Because if we don't call white supremacy what it is, we're effectively excusing that. And that means we're part of the problem if we do that. By the time most people see this, I'm sure that this will be really old news. I know that by now, most people who are political junkies who watch this podcast already know about this story, but I felt like I had to talk about it because this is the conclusion to one of the most fascinating chapters of the 2020 election cycle. And of course, I'm talking about Mike Gravel. So he qualified for the debate, but as we all know, still was not invited. So with that being said, since he wasn't able to accomplish that goal, he will be dropping out and all of the money that was raised will be going to Flint and other progressive charities. And I'll just say this, that Mike Gravel ran such a fantastic campaign because even if he did not make it into the debates, I still think that him and the teens that were running his account and did a fantastic job still pushed the Overton window to the left in this election cycle. And I think that that's really important. So he dropped out, but upon dropping out, he decided to endorse someone who he thinks can get the job done. My name is Mike Gravel. I'm proud and honored to endorse Senator Bernie Sanders for the presidency of the United States. 
Bernie has a program that benefits all Americans, not just the 1%. He will be a great president for all Americans. We have a simple choice. We can have a democratic socialism of Bernie Sanders to benefit all Americans, or we can have Republican socialism, which benefits the 1% and leads us to a constant state of war. The choice is yours. Now, in response to that, Bernie Sanders tweeted, Thank you, Senator Gravel. Together, we will end forever wars, fight for an economy that works for all of us, and bring millions of people into the political process. So this is great. I'm really, you know, thankful that he decided to endorse Bernie. And, um, you know, I'm glad that he was in this election cycle, that he decided to run because his platform that he released was by far the most progressive. I've said it multiple times on this program. Mike Gravel's platform is better than Bernie Sanders' platform. So that positive influence on the politicians in this race, it was absolutely necessary. And it's not like this is the worst election cycle either. Like, we actually have several fairly progressive options. Bernie Sanders, Tulsi Gabbard, Elizabeth Warren, Marianne Williamson. But to have Mike Gravel there to influence the conversation and just push the envelope even further when it comes to progressivism and bring up issues like reparations for anyone in Iraq who was affected by our invasion. I mean, these are important things. And it just cannot be overstated how amazing it was that this campaign was run by two teenagers. That is absolutely insane. And kudos to them. I expect nothing but good things to come out of them. And, you know, seven years, um, six years down the line, depending on how old they are, when they are old enough to run for Congress, I am absolutely excited about bringing them on my program to talk about their platform. Because if they can take Mike Gravel and, one, convince him to run, and two, get him to poll even higher than some of the establishment candidates, this is political talent that absolutely is going places. This isn't the last that we heard of them. So, you know, it, it's sad. It's bittersweet, right? It, it's sad to see Mike Gravel go. Um, I hope that he continues to tweet, and I hope that the teens continue to tweet on his behalf. But, you know, I'm I'm glad that he's still going to advocate for progressive policies and progressive politicians, and I'm absolutely thankful that he endorsed Bernie Sanders. This was the right move. Bernie Sanders is the real deal, and I think that it's only logical for him to endorse Bernie when we have a real shot this time of winning. We can actually do this. We actually can get someone in power in the executive who will bring about real change, democratic socialism, you know, more social democracy, but still, to get us on that trajectory would be a game changer. It would literally not just change lives, but save lives. So, you know, I, I'm just... I'm overjoyed and I feel privileged that I was able to speak to Mike Gravel that he came on the program just all around. This was, you know, I'm glad he ran. I'm absolutely glad that he ran. This was inspiring. I know that if I were his age, I would not want to do something like this. But, you know, some people just never stop fighting for what they believe in. And that's really admirable. So thank you to Mike Gravel. Thank you to the teams. I'm going to miss you guys. This was absolutely a phenomenal campaign. On night two of the last Democratic debate, the standout moment for me, unquestionably, was when Tulsi Gabbard went after Kamala Harris's criminal justice record. It was absolutely amazing, and it's why I think overall she won that debate, in part thanks to her strength there. Now, 
after a week, that's what we're all still talking about because it was such a glorious moment. And there's evidence that Kamala may actually be taking a dip in the polls. You know, we don't know yet, so we don't want to make any definitive statements because we want to see multiple polls before determining whether or not this hurt her. But all signs point to Kamala came out damaged here. Now, one thing that bothered me was that after Tulsi Gabbard made that powerful point, brought up a lot of red flags with Kamala's record, uh, Kamala didn't actually respond in any meaningful way. She didn't address the factual points that Tulsi Gabbard brought up. Instead, what she chose to do was smear Tulsi Gabbard as an Assad apologist. And it's clear that she was doing this because she wanted to distract people from her own record and try to get people to think that Tulsi was actually the bad guy. And, you know, nobody's surprised by this, but it's unfortunate it seemed to have worked because the media focused on Tulsi and not on Kamala. Congresswoman, do you not believe that the same could be said for your meeting with Bashar al-Assad? I don't know how you could equate that. that We're talking would, that about a president that with, is directly... That you would be meeting with the leader of Syria who could feasibly be responsible for the killings of over half a million people. You need to acknowledge that Bashar al-Assad is a murderous despot. Uh, if voters are wondering, what is your take on Bashar al-Assad? What do you say? So rather than holding Kamala Harris's feet to the fire, rather than talking about her criminal justice record, I mean, they shoot the messenger. They smear Tulsi as an Assad apologist. This is all that the media focuses on. And it's clear that her intentions were pure. She went to Syria because she wanted to foster peace between the United States and Syria. And it's just really, it's heartbreaking to see them be so disingenuous and give Kamala a pass when Tulsi brought up a lot of valid criticisms with Kamala's record. Now, Kyle Kalinske did a fantastic 20 plus minute long video breaking this down and why it really is egregious. And, you know, he said pretty much everything that I wanted to say but better. So I'll link you to that video and encourage you to watch it. Now, another highlight of the debate with Tulsi Gabbard was when she brought up how a fatal flaw with Kamala Harris's pseudo-Medicare for All plan was that, you know, it was being championed by Kathleen Sebelius, who works in the Medicare Advantage industry. And that got less attention, but it was also really great. Now, Tulsi Gabbard was also asked about her stance on private insurance and this didn't get as much attention because most people who were so disgusted by the smears of Tulsi Gabbard as an Assad apologist were focused more on that. But something Tulsi Gabbard said in this interview that kind of blew up afterwards, it actually did give progressives pause, progressives such as myself, because she said something about private insurance that was a little bit worrying to me. And I almost hesitate to bring this up because I don't want to pile on. Like, it's frustrating. I get why there are so many people who are hypersensitive to any and all criticisms of Tulsi Gabbard. It's because she is oftentimes the target of bad faith smears. However, with that being said, there are so many people who support Tulsi Gabbard who watch this show that I still feel as if, you know, if there's an area of opportunity, I have to bring it up. I have to address it. And, you know, people need to be able to decide for themselves whether or not there's room for uh, growth. And I absolutely think that what Tulsi says in this interview, which I didn't see until it kind of blew up online, it really gave me pause and I didn't like what she had to say. So we're going to watch it and then I'll let you decide for yourself, but then I'm going to tell you why I absolutely take issue with what Tulsi Gabbard said here. In terms of, of health care, where are you on the spectrum of 
you know. We've been uh, hearing a lot about that. Yes, Medicare for All yeah. or, or, you know, improve Obamacare. Yeah. Where are you? Well, first, let me just say our objective has to and must be making sure that no person, no American who is sick in this country should go without care because they can't afford it. That's why I have been and continue to be a supporter for Medicare for All that would guarantee that health care, that quality health care for every single American in this country. I also believe, like every other developed country in the world that has universal health care, that there is a role for private insurance to play for those who want it. Do you think for those who are embracing taking away private insurance from people ultimately, is that a, just strategically, politically, a, a, a non-starter? Uh, I, I don't know about the politics of it. I just think about it from the perspective of, of people, of the American people. That if all of a sudden you are taking away their choice, that's not, that's not a very American thing in my opinion. I think our responsibility as leaders is to meet the challenge and address the problems that people are facing, that they are suffering because of big insurance and big pharma's influence over our healthcare system for so long how they are profiting on the backs of sick people. So let's do our job, try to bring down the cost of health care in this country that's exorbitant, make sure people can get the quality care they need, and if they still choose that that's not what they want, they can go get the private insurance. Uh, I asked. Okay, so let me be clear. In no way do I think that was anywhere near as bad as Warren's there are many paths to Medicare for all line, but it still was deeply, deeply disappointing. Because Tulsi Gabbard was one of two candidates who I really felt like they hadn't wavered on Medicare for All. And I don't know that she's wavering here. I think that really we need more clarification. But what she said there absolutely worried me. Because I want someone who's going to get in there and just crack skulls and make these private insurance companies deathly afraid. But that's not what we got there. So we'll talk about the good thing. First, she affirmed support for Medicare for All. But then she says, I also believe like every other developed country in the world that has universal health care, that there is a role for private insurance to play for those who want it. Now, that's true. There, there is private insurance in other countries. So, for example, the UK, they have a national health system, right? That means publicly ran hospitals. But still, there's about a 10% private market in the UK. So that's true. But the difference is that when you're going into negotiations and you have a strong Medicare for all bill that leaves no room for any private insurance, you don't want to vocalize this. Like you don't want to broadcast to the health insurance industry that there's going to be some kind of a role for them. Because if you give them an inch, they're going to take a mile. Because when you say, no, there should be some role since there's a role in other countries, they're going to say, oh, perfect. Well, how big do you think that role should be, Tulsi? Should it be this big? Maybe it should be this big. We think it should be this big, though. Like, that's what you open the door to. So going into negotiations, you need to start at the strongest possible position. And you say, no private insurance. Now, as Bernie Sanders and Pramila Jayapal's bill stands, it bans duplicative coverage, but offers comprehensive care. So if you do both of those things at the same time, then what are you leaving for private insurance companies? Basically nothing. So as the bill stands now, it's going to wipe them out and virtually get rid of them. We are regulating them out of existence. Now, will everything in the bill currently stay if it's codified into law? Probably not. I'm sure it will be watered down to an extent, but you don't want to start to pre-negotiate like Obama did. Like Obama tried to do that with the Affordable Care Act. And what happened? We didn't even get a public option. He pre-negotiated because he thought he could get Republicans on board by not proposing a public option and he got zero Republicans. So you want to make sure that you close the door on that 
and let these private insurance companies know that they need to fear you because you are coming after them and you are an existential threat. Now, look, I know that Tulsi Gabbard knows about how corrosive this for-profit motive is because she called out that for-profit motive at that debate. You know, she talked about how Kamala's bill was bad because it was endorsed by Kathleen Sebelius, who was part of the, you know, Medicare Advantage vulture, you know, supplement healthcare industry. It's it's just awful. It's a ripoff. So, I mean, I'm not going to be too down on Tulsi there because she has been consistent in denouncing for-profit motives here with regard to healthcare and calling out that, you know, for-profit motive. That being said, though, this is where we get into really, really dangerous territory. I just think about this from the perspective of the people, the American people, that if all of a sudden you are taking away their choice, that's not a very American thing, in my opinion. Oof. She later says, and if they still choose, that's not what they want, assuming she's talking about Medicare for all, if it gets passed, they can go get private insurance they need. Okay. That does not sound like Medicare for all to me. That sounds like a public option. And by saying that Medicare for all, you know, in only having that and not allowing private is, quote, taking away choice, that is a horrible thing that a proponent of Medicare for all could say. Because that's not real choice. That's the illusion of choice. Because the choice that we want isn't between public and private insurance. The choice that we want is to be able to see whatever doctor we want, go to whatever hospital we want. So when you're talking about healthcare, that's not the real choice. Nobody's upset because there's no choice between public and private firefighters. The choice comes in at allowing us to make healthcare decisions and we make those healthcare decisions we are empowered to do what we need to do see the doctors we want when we have comprehensive universal coverage so i absolutely do not like that she said that and when she said they can go get private if they want to they can't though they cannot do that because section 107a bans duplicative coverage that means that all of the services that will be provided under Medicare for All cannot be offered by private insurance companies. So if you, for example, don't like Medicare for All, everyone's going to like it. But if you don't like it, you can't say, you know what, I'm going to pay for supplemental because I just don't think that my doctor is removing my infested toenail fast enough. So I want to get supplemental because I think that this procedure should be done faster. That's not the way that it's going to work because the point is to have everyone on the same plan to ensure that we have quality healthcare for everyone. Rich people and poor people have the same plan and we're not allowing rich people to pay more in order to jump to the front of the line. So we ban duplicative care to make sure that our Medicare for All system doesn't turn into a two-tiered healthcare system. Now, Tulsi Gabbard brought up the duplicative ban before. She did this at her first CNN town hall, so I know that she's aware of it. But for whatever reason here, you know, I know that she had a limited amount of time to answer. She made it seem as if there was no duplicative ban, that you could just get whatever insurance you want, private or public. But the goal is to get rid of uh, private insurance. Again, Section 107A bans duplicative coverage. Now, if you read the bill and you go to Section 107B, it says nothing in this bill shall be construed as banning private insurance. Now, that's true. It doesn't outright ban private insurance, only duplicative coverage. But you don't need to do that to reach the same goal, right? I mean, you're regulating them out of existence by banning duplicative care 
and by also offering comprehensive coverage. So if you cover everything and you say private companies can't cover what's already covered in Medicare for All, you're leaving little to no room for them. And I did a really long comprehensive video about this and I just re-released a shorter version of that um, where I talk about this, where I talk about what's in the bill. And, you know, this is a good thing. We want to make sure that we make that role for private insurance non-existent. We want them to go out of business. And sure, we want to just transition so people working in the, in the healthcare industry, you know, they don't lose their jobs and have nothing. We want to help these people. So we want to just transition. We're not trying to hurt people. We're trying to help people. But the goal is to get rid of private insurance companies. That's what Medicare for All is designed to do. And nobody's talking about banning all private insurance. It can still exist. So technically, if there's something that Medicare for All leaves out, sure, a private insurance company can offer coverage for that, but the goal shouldn't be, okay, well, here you go, private company. This is one of the gaps in Medicare for All, so I'll let you take it from here. No, the goal should be, well, we improve Medicare for All so it's better. I mean, think about this. Medicare currently, as it stands, when you turn 65, you qualify for Medicare. However, there are gaps that have not been closed. And what happened? Insurance vultures like Medicare Advantage companies, Kathleen Sebelius is part of that. They come in and they offer supplemental insurance. And people hate it. My mom just turned 65. And the other day she was telling me, I fucking hate Medicare Advantage. I hate it. I'm supposed to have... Medicare. I'm supposed to have free healthcare now. Why am I still paying copays and deductibles? So the goal is to make it so that way we're not allowing this type of situation where these Medicare Advantage type of vultures can water down our Medicare for all system. We don't want a two-tiered Medicare or healthcare system. So it really pains me to see someone who's been a longtime advocate for Medicare for all suggest that if we eliminate that private insurance option, we're somehow taking away choice. That is completely a misrepresentation of what Medicare for All does. And really, if she's a true advocate for Medicare for All, I want her to be strong. You start off strong and you negotiate when you start talking about passing the bill, not now when you're telling them, you know, I think there should be some role. No, there should be no role. Certain industries don't need that profit motive. In fact, the profit motive is detrimental, right? Because that creates a conflict of interest. If you put profit and incentivize profits in the healthcare industry, then that changes what healthcare means in America. People care more about profits. Industries care more about making money than serving people, than the delivery of healthcare. That's why we need to get private insurance out of our healthcare system. It's essential. Now understand that I'm handling this with kid gloves because I get why people are hypersensitive to criticisms of Tulsi Gabbard. But let me say this, I like Tulsi Gabbard. So when I see her say something that I disagree with, this doesn't mean that I'm trying to smear her. This doesn't mean that I'm trying to, you know, tear her down at the behest of Bernie or Elizabeth Warren. That's not what this is about. And we need to be adults and fight past the cognitive dissonance, okay? Not every candidate is perfect. I've criticized Bernie on numerous occasions. I criticized him because he didn't speak out on Julian Assange's behalf, and I gave Tulsi Gabbard credit for speaking out. I criticized Bernie on reparations, on BDS. I criticized Bernie Sanders on Venezuela. We have to be able to acknowledge that every single politician will sometimes mess up, but that doesn't mean that we change our positions 
in order to align with the candidate that we support. That means that no, if a candidate kind of gets off course, we steer them back in the right direction because they are the ones who answer to us, not the other way around. So I understand that I'm going to get scolded for daring to criticize Tulsi Gabbard here. And if you disagree with my interpretation, that's fine. But as someone who is passionate about Medicare for all, as someone who has this as his number one issue, I care deeply about the details. And I want to make sure that whenever one of the candidates who I support talks about Medicare for all, they hit all the points that they need to hit because we need the most robust healthcare system in the world. And that's what Medicare for all is going to do. We're not just trying to reach parity with Canada or the UK. I mean, sure, they're doing better than us now, but why are we just stopping there? We're trying to be a leader on healthcare because we can. We're the richest country on the planet. So there's no reason for us to water down our bill in order to preserve some type of role for private insurance companies. I mean, Adam Gaffney put it best. You don't want to allow for private insurance because if you do that, you have to carve out a space for them, which means you're watering down your own Medicare for all bill. So when I criticize Tulsi, I do it from a place of love. I do it as someone who supports her. So if you interpret that as a smear, some probably will, that's fine. But understand that if you truly support a candidate and you support Medicare for all and you want that candidate to do better, then um, you need to challenge them, challenge them and make them do better. That's what this is about. And to be clear, um, I don't I wouldn't say that this is her like backing away from Medicare for all because she said she supports Medicare for all. And look, she had about a minute to respond and then the conversation changed to the Assad smear, right? So I get it. You don't have a lot of time on these mainstream news outlets, but Tulsi absolutely if she loves her progressive supporters should clarify here and let us know where she stands when it comes to this issue. Because we called out Warren when she waffled on Medicare for all, she waffled way, way more than Tulsi Gabbard. But guess what happened? After a lot of criticism, after months of, of us criticizing Warren, now she's saying the right things about Medicare for all. So it's not like I'm saying, okay, you know what? Throw Tulsi Gabbard in the garbage. She's done here. I'm not saying that. And anyone who says that I am saying that, uh, they're being disingenuous and they're just standing. But what I am saying is if a candidate does something that you disagree with, challenge them to do better. Because you don't have to align your view with the candidate that you support. They have to align to what you want because they represent you. It's not the other way around. And I'll leave that there. Uh, I just want Tulsi to do better. I want her to clarify her stance here because I want someone who's going to fight for Medicare for all that says, you know what? Fuck these private insurance companies. You're all going to be gone. You will go out of business if I am elected. Go ahead and lobby against me. Bankroll my opponents because you know what? I have the people on my side. That's what I want to hear. And it's that simple. You can disagree with me. Um, you can suggest that maybe I'm misinterpreting what Tulsi Gabbard is saying. But don't say that I'm trying to smear her because this comes from a good place, right? This is not me saying, oh, she's an Assad apologist because I don't want to address the merits of a particular argument she's making. This is me saying specifically, I want to see improvement with regard to this issue and this one minute detail of a very important issue. That's it. I'll leave that there. So something really interesting happened. Bernie Sanders appeared on Joe Rogan's podcast. And I think that him making these types of appearances 
is really important because he can go on CNN and MSNBC all day, but he won't be able to talk about these things at length. Now, the alternative is to go on independent news shows, but at the same time, even though that matters, he's kind of just preaching to the choir because everyone, let's say hypothetically speaking, he came on the Humanist Report, and I have invited him for the record, Let's say he came on the Humanist Report. He's just preaching to the choir. So the goal ultimately is to reach new people, new audiences. And Joe Rogan has such a gigantic audience that if Bernie Sanders were able to get the chance to talk at length about some of his policy proposals, that could have an impact. So um, I made it through about halfway and then I had to stop watching, but I will resume on the weekend when I have more time. But just like the very first thing that came up, I already thought, okay, I want to talk about that because it's already like when you get to hear from candidates and it's not just a minute, two minutes at most, it really is a different type of dynamic. Like you really get to hear about the complexities of their policy positions. They really get to talk about the things that would happen, you know, what their policy would look like in practice. And after the debate, one of my biggest criticisms, and I didn't talk too much about this in my analyses, but it was that they didn't have enough time to respond. They had like one minute to answer questions and then what, like 15 seconds to offer rebuttals. You just, you just do not have enough time to talk about the nuances of complex policy proposals in that much time. I, I, you need more time than that. It's that simple. So this was the first thing that came up in Bernie Sanders' appearance with Joe Rogan. And Bernie Sanders talked about the pitfalls with the Democratic Party debates. It's just, it's not enough. Do you uh, do you get frustrated by the the time constraints of the debates? Absolutely, it's you shouldn't even call them a debate. Uh, what they are is a um, you know reality TV show in which you have to come up with a soundbite and all that stuff. It is the meaning. It's the meaning to the candidates and it's the meaning to the American people. You can't explain the complexity of healthcare in America in forty five seconds. Nobody can. But why is it still done that way? If you to try to, to let's pull this thing, like, bring it right there. There you go. Um, you know, I think the DNC is in a difficult position. They have twenty plus candidates, and they want to give everybody a fair shot, which is is the right thing to do. Uh, and then if you're going to have ten candidates up on the stage, what do you do? So, but there are other ways that we've got to do it because the issues facing this country are so enormous, and in some cases so complicated. Nobody in the world can honestly explain them in 45 seconds. And then that, what encourages people to do is to come up with sound bites and do absurd things. If I yelled and screamed on the show, I took my clothes off, uh, we get a lot of publicity, right? But yeah. if you give a thoughtful answer to a complicated question, it's not so sexy for the media. Well, you don't even have a chance to give a thoughtful answer. Like uh, Tulsi Gabbard went after Kamala Harris, and then Kamala Harris had about 12 seconds to reply to it. It was so ridiculous. To, to, to have something that's such an important issue, like, did you or did you not put all those people in jail for marijuana? Did you laugh about it? Did this happen? Did that happen? All these different things. Was evidence withheld? Right. That's a, they, these are a long conversations. Well, but it takes us to another issue, and that as a nation, we do a pretty bad job in analyzing and discussing the serious issues facing our country. And I, I hold the media to some degree responsible for that. You know, other countries, what they do is they say, Joe, you want to run for president? I'll tell you what, with your party in the general election, we're going to give you a certain amount of time, hours, on television. And you use those hours any way you want. You want a 15-minute discourse. You remember Ross Perot? Yes. And people used to laugh at Ross Perot. 
because he used to get up there with a chart and all this stuff, and, and the media made fun of him. But in fact, he tried in his own way to explain his point of view to the American people. And we need serious discussion on, on serious issues. Well, he had the, op- because he was so rich, he had the ability to buy airtime on network television, which is pretty unprecedented. He just bought a chunk of airtime and then pled his case. But you know what goes on in other countries? You don't have to buy that time. What the obligation is, if you are a network, you're going to make that time free and available to candidates. Do you think that that's something that could be viable in America? I mean, could could you convince CBS and NBC and ABC to go along with something like that? No, you couldn't convince no. them. You'd have to pass legislation to make that happen. That was a really strong point. I totally agree. He said, you shouldn't even call it a debate. It's a reality TV show in which you have to come up with a soundbite. That's exactly it. And that's such a problem, right? Because whoever is perceived to be the winner of the debate is going to be the person that got in a particular jab or had, you know, fireworks, you know, or was involved in some sort of exchange when really it should be about who presented their policy ideas and was the most persuasive. Now, you can't really analyze who won or lost in any other way but to say, oh, well, this person had the most memorable moments, so they win. You know, it's they just don't have enough time to really go in depth, and you can't analyze it in any other way. So what politicians do in order to win these debates is they kind of craft their message in a way that can be reduced down to a 15 to 20 second soundbite. And even if that's exciting, you know, for political junkies like myself, who already know about the policy details, for someone who's watching who's not politically savvy, what are you learning? Like, what are you learning when you see that, right? I mean, there are candidates who are pretty good at doing this. Like, I felt like when Tulsi Gabbard called out the fatal flaw in Kamala's plan with Kathleen Sebelius and her influence there, I thought that that was really powerful. But if Tulsi had an extra minute or two minutes. Imagine how much more of a difference that would have made when Bernie Sanders talked about, you know, the benefits of Medicare for All and had his I wrote the damn bill moment, you know, with Tim Ryan, which was memorable. Imagine if he actually had time, 10, 15 minutes, to talk about all of the benefits that will be provided under Medicare for All. So you just don't get that. And what we know about candidates, what we learn about these candidates for the most part is, you know, what we see from these really quick sound bites. So this kind of drives the discussion in a very reality TV-focused type of way, and it's just not conducive to any nuanced conversation about politics, which is why I really enjoy these long-form interviews with candidates, because this is when you really get to learn about these candidates, when they can really talk at length and you know, listen to feedback and answer follow-up questions. This is what you need when they're not being rushed. And what Bernie Sanders said about candidates and them having guaranteed airtime was actually a really, really phenomenal point. And this is something that would absolutely help. It would incentivize these candidates to not craft a message that would be more appealing in a 20 or 30 second soundbite, but rather would give them the time to use a certain amount of airtime as they see fit. Now, back in 2008, Kerry Garcia actually made a really strong case for this and explained that this wouldn't just even the playing field and allow all types of different candidates equal space to compete, but it would also diminish the need for money in politics to an extent because a lot of super PACs, what do they spend money on? They spend money on television advertisements. So if you mandated free airtime for every single candidate, legislatively speaking, so networks couldn't opt out of it, then what would that do? That would kind of curtail this over-reliance 
on super PACs and it wouldn't allow special interests to monopolize discourse because, you know, a candidate like Bernie Sanders can say, we need Medicare for all. Um, this is why it's superior to what we have now with private insurance. And then they could spend millions of dollars advertising to say, well, actually, you know, Medicare for all is a threat and it's a threat to you. They could spread propaganda. And Bernie Sanders brought this up. He said, look, at this debate, there were advertisements from health industry companies during this debate while we were talking about healthcare. So mandating free airtime, that's not going to be a catch-all. You know, it's gonna, not going to solve all problems, but it certainly would help. So overall, um, this was a really, really great interview based on what I've seen. Again, I've made it about halfway through, and Bernie Sanders was absolutely charming. Um, I think that Joe Rogan actually did a good job at driving this conversation, and it really allowed Bernie Sanders to talk at length about his ideas, and everyone just hears Bernie say the same things, you know, the billionaire class and the 1%, but to hear him talk at length about how the lowest common denominator in this country is money and it corrupts everything, that was so powerful, and I really feel like these types of appearances, these types of at-length interviews with candidates, this is the key here. This is what is going to change hearts and minds. And I would like to see more of this, you know, and I think that a lot of people want to see more of this. Hence why, you know, podcasts have exploded in popularity, you know, because we don't operate under the same time constraints as cable news shows. I don't have to stop and cut to commercial. I can talk as long as I want to, and the only concern that I have to worry about is, am I rambling too much? You know, is this going to be too long? Do our viewers, you know, are going to tune out if I talk too long? Like, I could tailor-make any video to where I think it's going to have the best impact and be most educational. So, uh, I love this. I'm glad Bernie went on Rogan, and um, I really am... Glad to see Rogan bring on left-wing guests. He brought on uh, Cornell West, now Bernie Sanders. Good. Keep it up. I absolutely think that when somebody does a good thing, you need to um, commend them for it. So everyone is still reeling from the white supremacist terror attack that took place in El Paso. And at a time when we're all seeing firsthand how deadly white supremacy is, a white supremacist who goes on Fox News every single night and espouses anti-immigrant bigoted rhetoric is going to tell all of us that white supremacy isn't actually an issue. In fact, it's a hoax. And this, you know, it's not surprising coming from a white supremacist like Tucker Carlson, but you would think that he'd have a filter, right? You'd think that he would resort to more dog whistles because saying things like this, especially at a time when we're all paying attention to the threat that white supremacy poses, you would think he would just know better, right? But he has no shame. And in this segment, uh, you're going to see him tell you why white supremacy is not a real issue. In fact, it's a hoax. This is disgusting. But the whole thing is a lie. If you were to assemble a list a hierarchy of concerns of problems this country faces. Where would white supremacy be on the list? Right up there with Russia, probably. It's actually not a real problem in America. The combined membership of every white supremacist organization in this country would be able to fit inside a college football stadium? I mean, seriously. This is a country where the average person is getting poorer, where the suicide rate is spiking. White supremacy, that's the problem. This is a hoax. Just like the Russia hoax, it's a conspiracy theory used to divide the country and keep a hold on power. That's exactly what's going on. That was disgusting. 
He's just, he's shameless. He is shameless. I mean, he knows his audience though, right? He's telling Trump supporters exactly what they want to hear. But he's misinforming people and it's gross. Here's what he says. If you were to establish a hierarchy of concerns of problems this country faces, where would white supremacy be on the list? Pretty fucking high. Especially if you are the target of white supremacists. Did the El Paso shooting not demonstrate how deadly white supremacy is? It's not just that it's a small issue. It's deadly, dipshit. How do you not realize this? Because he's in a bubble. He's an elite. He's rich. And he has white privilege. And he probably wouldn't acknowledge that, but he, he doesn't care. He spends all day complaining about immigrants. Gets paid millions of dollars every single year to fearmonger about immigrants like Ilhan Omar, who are dangerous. And then he has the nerve to say that white supremacy isn't an issue. It's a hoax. During a week when there was a white supremacist terror attack and over 20 people were killed fucking gross what a disgusting morally reprehensible person tucker carlson is he says it's actually not a real problem in america maybe it's not a real problem to you he says white supremacy is a conspiracy theory used to divide the country and keep a hold on power now white supremacy is absolutely a tool used to divide but it's not the people who condemn white supremacy who are using it to be divisive. It's the president who you stand for and do propaganda for. Who is locking human beings in cages. Who's using white supremacy to divide. When you fearmonger about immigrants like Ilhan Omar and say that they pose a danger to this country, that is white supremacy for purposes of sowing social discord. That's what's the problem. See, because you use white supremacy because it's really convenient to blame all of the country's economic and social and cultural issues on immigrants and people with no money and no power, especially if that means that you're protecting our capitalist overlords by getting everyone to turn their attention to people who aren't the real problem, who aren't causing problems, you know, but it's a nice distraction, right? When you say, hey, immigrants are dangerous, that gets people to turn away as the capitalist overlords stab them in the back. So he's right about white supremacy being divisive, but it's being used by Republicans. We see white identity politics used to divide and fire up the base. Like for a party and for a person like Tucker Carlson who repeatedly denounce the use of identity politics, they sure the fuck use a lot of identity politics. A lot of identity politics. White identity politics. Now, someone who knows firsthand about how deadly and dangerous white supremacy is, is Heather Hare's mother. And for those of you who don't remember, Heather Hare was tragically murdered by a white supremacist terrorist in 2017 at Charlottesville. Now, her mother responded to what Tucker Carlson had, had said there, and um, what she said was really poignant. Mr. Carlson lives in a studio, I, I suppose. Uh, his world revolves around a studio. 
Maybe he would like to visit some of the places where people have been injured by white supremacy before making such a statement. There are always people who want to cry hoax. It's both a comfort to them to think that uh, the world is not as bad as it appears to be. It's also a way of distancing themselves from any of the responsibility for dealing with those um, evils in the world. So. Um, I would say he probably is well aware in his heart that that is not true, but it's easier to say it than it is to do something about it. Two years ago, Susan, you, you lost your daughter, and so I just have two last questions for you. One, how can all Americans honor her? I. I often refer to a motto that Heather adopted before she died. She put it on her Facebook page. She did not write it. Uh, the writer is unknown. But the phrase is, or the statement is, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. And I tell people to be outraged, but in a way that can drive you to positive action. Turn that outrage into energy to motivate you to get involved to get up out of your seat, stop wringing your hands and going, gee, somebody should do something about it, and step up to the plate. And once you step up, then continue on with that and step out into direct action. Uh, we call that hashtag step up, step out. You can't just sit idly by and hope that the world's going to solve all the problems for you. It's time for everybody to join in. What do you miss most about her? Last question quickly. Her laugh. Now, I let that clip play out a little bit because I really think that it's important for people to see that white supremacy causes pain. Like, you heard the pain in her voice caused by this deadly ideology. And it was incredibly important to see how this affects people. And it's not like it just affected Heather Heyer and her mother. White supremacy is an issue that we have to grapple with as a country. This is an ideology that has seen a resurgence since, you know, the internet became more widespread because people who were white supremacists and afraid to, you know, vocalize their white supremacists, uh, white supremacist viewpoints, they found out that there were other people online who felt the same way that they felt and then Donald Trump got elected. So, you know, white supremacy is becoming fashionable again because people like Tucker Carlson and Donald Trump, they're not afraid to vocalize their white supremacist ideology. But what Heather Heyer's mom there said was just so on point. She says, there are always people that want to cry hoax. It's both a comfort to them to think the world is not as bad as it appears to be. It's also a way of distancing themselves away from any of the responsibility for dealing with the evils of the world. Yeah. She also said that it's um, something that he knows is true. He's smart enough to know that white supremacy is a huge issue. Um, but she made the point that it's... You know, it's easier to say that than to actually do something about white supremacy. Because think about this. You know, Tucker Carlson, if he denounced white supremacy, he would lose support. Donald Trump supporters tune in to hear him complain about how immigrants are ruining the country. So if he came out and unequivocally condemned this deadly ideology, even if that's the moral thing to do, he would lose support. So he knows what's right. He's just career minded. I just 
I don't know how he sleeps with himself at night. I'd rather not have a career than have to do what he does. That's fucking despicable. Now, I want to show you a list of Tucker Carlson's leading advertisers. I will link you to the full list down below. And look, if you purchase any of the products from these advertisers, why don't you give them a call and let them know what they're supporting? Tell them that they're advertising on a show that promotes white supremacy by a white supremacist. And, you know, tell them that you don't want to spend your money on their products. And understand that these types of advertiser boycotts, they are rarely effective because if they flee Tucker Carlson's show, which they have in the past, they come right back when nobody's looking. And then we put pressure on them when he says something stupid, you know, a few months down the line, they flee and then they come back. So these are rarely useful. And Tucker Carlson has the habit of, you know, not... Uh, not apologizing and always doubling down. So this is most likely not going to be effective, but I don't know what else to do, you know? And before you say, oh, well, this is censorship if you want an advertiser boycott. No, this is freedom of speech. This is the way that freedom of speech works. I have, you know, the freedom to say, I am not going to use my money to buy products that advertise on a white supremacist television show. That's what freedom is about. I'm not trying to stifle speech by saying we should do an advertiser boycott of Tucker Carlson. I'm using my speech to speak out against speech that I don't like. That's the way that freedom of speech works. That's the way the marketplace of ideas works. So, I mean, I don't know what else to say about this. If you haven't gotten, you know, the drift yet about Tucker Carlson, if you haven't figured out what's up with him, if you haven't picked up what he's putting down yet, I don't know what else he has to do. Does he have to put on a clan hood and come out and say that he absolutely hates all minorities for you to realize what he's about? The man is a white supremacist, and now he's espousing dangerous rhetoric. He's saying white supremacy doesn't exist, and it's a hoax. Well, no. He disproves the notion that white supremacy is a hoax because he goes on television every single day and espouses white supremacist ideology and rhetoric. He is proof that white supremacy is alive and very much is real. And it's something that we all need to combat and need to fight against and denounce unequivocally because this is not just a dangerous ideology. This is a deadly ideology that we all need to condemn and fight to stop. I know that when I talk about the need for Medicare for All, I'm basically preaching to the choir because you all know that Medicare for All is an absolute necessity, but I really do think it's important to share the stories that really illustrate how messed up our healthcare system is. And this story that I came across in the New York Post, it really just it hit a nerve with me because it was, it was just so tragic, it was so sad. So this is from Hannah Frischberg of the New York Post who explains when Josh Wilkerson turned 26, he aged out of his stepfather's private health insurance and he was unable to afford his nearly $1,200 a month insulin. He began rationing his pricey prescription brand before a doctor recommended taking Relyon, an over-the-counter brand sold for $25 a vial at Walmart. It didn't work for his body. His mom, Erin Wilson Weaver, tells the Post. Her son died June 14th and she's still in mourning, but determined to advocate in his memory. 
Known as human insulin, Relyon requires more time to become effective than the analog insulin that Wilkerson had previously been taking, but at one-tenth of the price, it was more affordable for the Northern Virginia Dog Kennel Supervisor, who is earning $16.50 an hour. When it comes to type 1 diabetes, people are facing unthinkable decisions between the cost of living and their very lives, Wilson Weaver writes in a post for a diabetes advocacy blog full of similar posts about those lost to type 1 diabetes after being unable to afford insulin. We figured, hey, it's $25, we can do that, and we'll just work with it and try to do the best we can. Wilkerson's fiance, Rose Walters, 27, tells the Washington Post. Walters, also a type 1 diabetic, began using the cheaper insulin as well last winter. The pair also had to switch to an over-the-counter brand for their blood glucose meters to keep medical prices within their budget. The couple, among the 30 million U.S. residents living with diabetes, planned for a rustic barnhouse wedding in October and hoped to save money for it with the more affordable, if less effective, medication. I mean, if this story right here doesn't tell you how dysfunctional our healthcare and pharma care system is, then what will? They were trying to save money for their wedding, so he opted for a cheaper insulin, and he ended up dying. What a heartbreaking story. And think about that. He was making sixteen fifty. That's a living wage. Still, obviously, couldn't afford $1,200 every single month for insulin. And why is it that even if you can't afford it, you have to pay that? Because people who don't have diabetes, who don't need insulin, don't have to pay that. So why, because of something you can't control, should you be in the hole $1,200 every single month? It's unthinkable. So this was just such a heartbreaking story to read, and I just thought, how, how can you read stories like this and not be outraged, not want to take action? I mean, if you're a Republican lawmaker, how can you continue to turn a blind eye as people are cutting pills because they can't afford prescription drug prices? I mean, at what point do lawmakers say, let's do something just because I'm a human being and I want to minimize human human suffering as much as possible. I don't I, I just I don't get it. I don't get it. There are so many cold people in Congress who just couldn't care less about stories like this. I mean, you saw in um, Nevada, fourth congressional district, Amy Valela, her daughter died because we don't have Medicare for all. So she challenged the lawmaker who wouldn't co-sponsor Medicare for All legislation. She ultimately lost to someone else, who is now talking about how we shouldn't do Medicare for All, Stephen Horsford. When are people going to make the moral choice that we are not going to allow private insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies to dictate what goes on in our country? When are we going to stand up once and for all and say, you don't get to rip people off? I mean, this is killing people. And it's not like these stories are so, like, far-fetched. Everyone knows someone who's dealing with it. Everyone knows someone. We all know someone who had to do a GoFundMe to pay for a medical bill. I just had to do a GoFundMe for my niece. We did this a couple of months ago because she had a baby and she has insurance.
but her baby was in the NICU for, uh, I want to say two months. And, um, they had to worry about medical bills that were piling up. They had to worry about, you know, leaving work and whatnot, her and her partner. Um, my friend Savage Joy of Real Progressives had to do a GoFundMe because she has insurance, but she's fighting with her insurance. I mean, at what point do we stop the madness? This is fucking insane. I mean, I, I just, I don't know what to say, right? If you've watched any progressive YouTube show, Secular Talk, um, The Rational National, we've all said it. We've all said we need Medicare for all. So, I mean, what else do we say at this point? Our system is insane. People who need insulin should never have to worry about getting it. And I feel like the reason why this hits so close to home is because just this year, my nephew was diagnosed with diabetes and he requires insulin. And now I'm very, very aware of the cost of insulin, you know, um, because it affects someone in my, in my life very personally. And I was already aware of it, but you know, this can happen to anyone. So we need to make sure that we protect people. We use our tax dollars to stop murdering people in the Middle East and North Africa. And we actually put that money back into our country, back into our communities to make sure that these types of things don't happen. Like, I never want to hear a story about how someone died because they didn't have health insurance or, you know, they um, couldn't afford their prescription drugs or, you know, I don't want to hear a story about how somebody had insurance, but they still couldn't pay for their deductible. So I think that as progressives and democratic socialists, we all know what we're looking for in candidates. We want those, you know, bold progressive policy proposals, and we want them to be so bold and open about what they want to do to change the country and, you know, really just remake the status quo that people who are powerful, special interests, American oligarchs openly are contemptful of that candidate because that's what really proves to us that the candidate is the real deal and they're fighting for us, right? Because back in 2008, I really felt like Obama was that change candidate like he said he was. But, you know, a lot of us, I think, myself especially included, were naive. We didn't look at the financial contributions that he was taking from Wall Street. And I think that we all learned our lesson and now we realize that, you know, you can judge how progressive a candidate is by looking at how much they are hated by American oligarchs. Now, there is a report from Giacomo Tognini of Forbes who talks about how much billionaires love the 2020 Democratic Party primary candidates. And he's judging this based on who received the most support and donations from billionaires. Now, in the top five, we have Pete Buttigieg, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, Michael Bennett, and Joe Biden. Now, Pete Buttigieg has a total of 23 billionaire donors. This includes a big oil executive's wife, Len Blavatnik. Uh, he also had an executive from Blackstone Group, as well as Netflix CEO Reed Hastings host fundraisers for him. Cory Booker has 18 billionaires, which includes former CEO of Estee Lauder, an heiress from Cox Enterprises, Bill Gates, and Google's former CEO, Eric Schmidt. Uh, we have Kamala Harris with 17 billionaire donors. That includes another 
Erica Cox Enterprise, and uh, George Lucas. And we have Michael Bennett, who is, what, polling at 0% with 15 billionaire donors, and that includes hedge fund billionaire Jim Simmons. And then we have Joe Biden with 13 billionaire donors. That includes Warren Buffett and real estate moguls like Neil Bloom and Herb Simon. So that's the top five. And that's just crazy. Think about that. Pete Buttigieg attracted 23 billionaire donors. How are you not embarrassed? Because you're clearly not looking out for the people if that many oligarchs are donating to you. Because if they're spending money on you, they obviously see that there is a value in getting you elected to them, right? Because we're all self-interested. We vote based on what affects us personally. So, of course, they're not going to donate to someone who they don't believe will actually look out for them. And Pete Buttigieg, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, Joe Biden, all would undoubtedly look out for American oligarchs. Now, let's go to the rest of the list here. John Hickenlooper came in sixth place with 11 billionaire donors, Beto O'Rourke with nine, Amy Klobuchar with eight, Jay Inslee with five, Kirsten Gillibrand with four, John Delaney with three, and even Elizabeth Warren has two billionaire donors. Her and Steve Bullock are actually tied in 12th place with two billionaires each. And Elizabeth Warren, uh, one of her billionaire donors anyway, is Susan Pritzker. Now in 13th place, we have Tulsi Gabbard, Andrew Yang, and Marianne Williamson. Now, Tulsi Gabbard and Andrew Yang both received a donation from Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey, and Marianne Williamson got money from Rebecca Poland. And let's get to the people who have zero billionaire donors. There's only four candidates. Julian Castro, Bill de Blasio, Tim Ryan, and Bernie Sanders, all with zero billionaire donors. Now, the most remarkable thing ever to me is that Bernie Sanders is a top-tier candidate. He has consistently polled in second place. So the fact that he has zero billionaire donors, do you want to know what that communicates to me? He's the real deal. I want to support the candidate who is hated by billionaires. That's what I want. I don't want someone who's going to assure them that the status quo won't change. I don't want someone who's going to tell us one thing and then do something else behind closed doors. I want someone who openly says, you know what, these billionaires, these American oligarchs can hate me, and I welcome their hate. That's what FTR said, and Bernie Sanders echoed that same sentiment in 2016, and he's basically saying the same thing again in 2020, because he's being antagonistic on purpose towards the billionaire class. He's saying, this is paid for by you, not the billionaires. And it's because we don't need to be winning over billionaires. If you are a billionaire, then by definition, you are an immoral person. I truly believe that. And maybe people think that I'm too extreme. Fine. But that's my opinion. If you have a billion dollars, you are a greedy, immoral person, and you are hoarding your wealth. Um, so what do you do? You know, I mean, of course, we want to raise taxes. And people like Bill Gates can say, look, I want the government to raise my taxes. But, I mean, you're still hanging on to that wealth. Donate it. Give that money to progressive causes. I mean, let's say, hypothetically speaking, I was a billionaire. And the government wanted to give me a bunch of tax breaks. Um, what would I do with that money? Basically, um, I'd probably give away almost all of it. But I would certainly keep a portion of 
to do pro-Medicare for All advertisements. I'd flood the airwaves with that, you know, to counter some of the propaganda we see from the pharmaceutical industry. But how many billionaires are actually doing this? When there are so many people who are struggling to put food on the table, living paycheck to paycheck, I just don't know how people can live with themselves if they have that much money, if you're hoarding that much wealth. You know, if you're making $10 million a year and you're still worried about your own taxes, I mean, Jesus, it, it, like money is a drug. Like you get it and you just want more of it. It's addictive, right? This is what capitalism incentivizes. It corrupts institutions and it corrupts people. You know, this is why I've become extremely anti-capitalist because this is what capitalism does. It pits us against one another. It makes it so that way all we care about is profits over people. And we're willing to betray our own family members if, you know, money is brought into the equation. And not everyone is like this. Of course, I'm generalizing, but we shouldn't have that incentive is what I want to communicate. You know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have to worry so much about money that you stop talking to your brother if he forgets to pay you back the $20 that he borrowed from you. You know, it's just, this isn't the way that life should be. It doesn't have to be this way. But um, I've kind of gotten a little bit off topic. But long story short, I'm glad that I support the candidate who has zero donations from billionaires. Pete Buttigieg, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, Joe Biden. These are absolutely corrupt frauds. And what these donations tell you is that if they get elected, do you think they're going to be beholden to you? or beholden to all of these billionaires and probably dozens and dozens, uh, if not hundreds of millionaires donating to them. I mean, obviously, they will be beholden to the American oligarchs who helped them get elected. That's the way that politics works. That's the way that uh, our democracy functions since capitalism has corrupted it entirely. Hello, everyone. I'm here with Lauren Ashcraft, who is running in New York's 12th congressional district will she be the next superstar out of new york who is progressive we'll find out lauren thanks for coming on the program <laughs> thank you so much for having me it's a pleasure i i was really excited to hear about your campaign because your platform is absolutely robust and one thing that i really love about all of these progressive candidates running is that you all have platforms that are like more fleshed out than a lot of presidential candidates, which I just find <laughs> amazing. So we'll talk about your platform, but I want to just basically get to know you a little bit because you're running for Congress. And my question is why? And second of all, tell us a little bit about yourself because your biography is fascinating. Like for those of you who don't know, on her website, she kind of explains a little bit about herself and why she decided to run, but she'll tell us here. But I mean, you have a background, you know, you were an exchange student in Germany. You yeah. were doing comedy. So tell us about <laughs> yourself. I find this so fascinating. <laughs> so I, I, you're right. I, you know what? I'm just going to put it out there. I'm a weird candidate and I have a weird story. <laughs> Um, so a lot of things are motiv motivating me to do exactly what I'm doing. And I started, you know what, my activism started before I was born, actually, because I come from a really hardworking family. My grandmother is an immigrant from Japan. Um, my grandfather was a coal miner in West Virginia. They met when he was over in Japan with the Air Force during World War II. And in order to pay for, uh, to you know, to feed the family whenever they were back. He got a job as a coal miner in his hometown in Mannington, West Virginia, and was unfortunately part of the Farmington mine disaster. Uh, he was a victim and died that day, and my grandmother was left uh, with 
three young children to feed and had only my grandfather's very small work history social security checks um, based on his, his life. He was actually one year older than me. I'm 30. So that's very strange for me to actually say. But the fact that I grew up with these stories of my immigrant grandmother living off of social security checks, barely speaking English, but putting herself through high school, getting her GED, uh, and then going through nursing school and working really hard to be able to keep, uh, you know, living the American dream. She actually worked so hard that she was able to comfortably retire in the last years of her life. But with that said, one of the things that she was proudest of uh, until her very last day is that she became an American. And uh, whenever I hear of people at the border being put in cages for seeking a better life and coming to this country, that really strikes a chord with me. And uh, whenever I hear of companies cutting corners and uh, risking the safety of their workers, it also strikes a chord with me because that's why my grandfather died. And on the other side of my family, um, my, grand my other grandfather was a hardworking trailer repair person and uh, he fell not that far, about three feet one day and just landed in the wrong position and became a quadriplegic. And that was while I was a teenager and you know, in those very formative years, I watched his struggle financially and uh, physically. And everywhere I walked around, I was just way more conscious of, oh, you have to step up to get into this building. That means my grandpa can't go there. And, oh, he can't get on this train. He can't use this public transit. And so I walk around New York City and realize all of the places that like my grandfather couldn't have been able to go and realized, uh, you know, the Americans with Disabilities Act is 29 years old and uh, representatives have not been pushing hard enough to represent uh, people that do not have the same physical abilities that me and you have. So I'm fighting, I'm fighting for that the everyone I'm fighting for the 100 percent um, because not not everyone in Congress has and so specifically with the Americans with Disabilities Act um, I would like to expand it and include enforcement at the federal level because right now if you uh, if you notice that something is not compliant or uh, someone with a wheelchair can't access a building or transit the way that you can make a difference is by taking that business to court. And so that time burden and financial burden and traveling to court, uh, that burden is on the people taking that business to court. And it usually is the people with disabilities because you and I may not walk around and necessarily think about how difficult it is for people to move around. So that is one part of my platform. Anyway, long story short, is my entire life and my family background, I have seen how regular everyday people get ignored by representatives. And I am a New Yorker by choice. I spammed my resumes out here after I graduated from school. And um, whenever I moved out here, I also have been struggling like everyone else to pay for not affordable rent and wanted to get to know people in the community. So I signed up 
for a comedy class. And that is how I got into stand-up comedy. And it's how I met a lot of my dearest friends in the city. And I started producing my own shows because the comedy community was actually plagued with its own Me Too movement, unfortunately. And so I just wanted uh, a safe place for women and uh, LGBTQIA uh, members to be able to perform. And uh, you know what? It turned into a really amazing series. We had, unfortunately, a celebration planned for after the 2016 elections because we were excited to send Trump back to his penthouse and not have to watch him every day on the news anymore. But unfortunately, that didn't turn out the way that we hoped. So we turned that celebration into a fundraiser for Planned Parenthood. And that went really well. And we felt like we were doing something to fight back a little bit. So the next month, uh, we actually uh, fundraised for the ACLU. And then it kept going, the Flint Water Crisis and California Wildfire Foundation and uh, rebuilding infrastructure in Puerto Rico. So all of these things, we just kept fundraising for whatever was being attacked in the news or whatever was being attacked by the current administration. We felt like supporting that series is collection box comedy, and it's still going on today. And it got me really into kind of this grassroots, literally underground movement in uh, in my district and fighting for the people. And then... <laughs> Uh, I got really involved with the Women's March because I am pretty sick of women's rights always being on the chopping block. And, uh, you know, this January, my worlds kind of collided and I emceed that Women's March. And that day, something in me snapped whenever I was able to explain to, I think, 200,000 people why we need to keep fighting for women's rights and um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was there and I saw her as a normal millennial that previous to her run was not well connected and she did grassroots fundraising like my only option is because I'm rejecting that corporate and super PAC money and I was you know what she's a passionate millennial that's fighting really hard and making a huge difference and I threw my hat in the ring so here I am. That is so cool. Okay, so there's so much about that that I just find so fascinating. So I don't know if there's a term for it, but it sounds like what you're doing is comedy for a cause, which is absolutely amazing. And second of all, <laughs> you know, when I hear your story and when I hear the story of like different candidates from across the country, it seems like their life experiences, it all is like puzzle pieces. And when you put them all together, you see their platform, like you see them advocating yes. for positions that are so important. Because like you said, like for us able-bodied individuals, like we don't have to think about access to particular buildings. Um, so for someone yeah. to advocate for people with disabilities is important. So this is something that you don't really realize until you experience it for yourself. Even though we have the American with Disabilities Act, it doesn't go far enough. And there's still a lot of barriers, like certain buildings my dad can't go to because exactly. if you have a wheelchair and he can't walk, you know, what do you do? So it, it's really nice to see people use their li life experiences and kind of 
use that to build onto a platform that will benefit everyone. And even though there's these overlapping issues that we all care about, Medicare for all, you know, uh, climate change and taking action, there's these really niche issues, or not necessarily niche, but, you know, these issues that are unique to certain people that just aren't being talked about. Because if you don't have that experience, then you can't really speak to that because life is subjective. So it's so fascinating to see everyone come together and like bring these issues to light. And your platform mm -hmm. is so great. So I was reading over your platform and one of the things um or a couple of the things here that i love mandatory vaccinations people don't talk about this enough it's incredibly incredibly important um and i know that it's controversial but it's necessary and it's good for the species um yeah you want to decriminalize sex work excellent never talked about enough uh legalization of marijuana um so these are all policies that are have only really been talked about for the last couple of, of years and what's really interesting mm -hmm. to me is that they're already so popular but let me ask you this though because i always like to hear this from candidates there's like a million different things that you know we need to do to fix the country so let's say hypothetically speaking you're elected you defeat carolyn maloney you have a blue district so you would win if you you know you um were the nominee what would you focus on like if you had to choose like three or so different issues what would be your priority within that first year because you can't accomplish all of your agenda so what do you think you would focus on yeah so i would take the biggest swipe i can at this corporate pack money in politics and obviously i've been vocal about uh, ending citizens united but there are things we can do in the meantime until we have enough people that feel the same way in Congress and Senate uh, to actually get a constitutional amendment passed. So I have an idea about how to annoy the crap out of politicians that accept corporate and super PAC money. And you know there's ideas about democracy dollars and uh, um, vouchers that you can use on elections, but I have this idea of on your federal tax returns, all you have to do is check a box and you get $100 that can be used for uh, donating to federal campaigns. And then in order to accept that $100 um, for your campaign, you have to reject corporate and super PAC money. So for me, no big deal. I reject that and I don't have to ask you any further questions. Just use that $100 on me. Really easy. And you can do it the same way. You don't have to use a voucher or wait for it in the mail. It's literally just $100 that you get back in your checking account. And then you know that you can use $100 on candidates. But if you are a candidate such as my opponent who accepts large amounts of corporate and super PAC money, then it's your burden to verify that that $100 or whatever people are throwing your way contains none of that tax credit. So you have to add a question on your Act Blue. Uh, you have to call and ask people that send you checks. However you get that money, you have to verify that it's not that because otherwise you have to give it all back and, you know, FEC compliance is a pretty serious thing. So basically, everyone gets $100 and we can annoy the crap out of politicians <laughs> that accept corporate and super PAC money. I love that idea. And you want to know what's funny is we already kind of do something similar to that in Oregon, where we each get a $50 tax credit that we can write off every year to donate to a candidate. But I heard Amazing. about this from AOC, who says that in certain areas, and this was back when she was a candidate when she came on my show, she said that there are certain areas in uh, New York, where you actually 
have a version of this where you know you kind of get like a tax credit so amazing do you know has there been any like municipalities that have tried something similar to that to a degree of success um i know like new york city for city council for example actually has public funding like matching so that's great and i'm also for something along those lines federally as well but right now the federal federal elections there's so much corporate and super PAC money just being thrown into them and in my opinion that is the root cause of all these issues of why is our healthcare system so broken why can't we just move to single payer medicare for all well there's politicians sitting uh representing us that accept all this money from private health insurance lobbies and uh big pharmaceutical lobbies and why is there such a such a pause in moving towards common sense gun legislation again nra and the gun lobby throwing money at politicians that i don't know how they sleep at night to be honest so all all of these problems criminal justice reform why is weed not legalized uh you know everything that you can think of that makes no sense that we haven't moved in that direction is stalled because of this money in politics and i'm trying to think of a way that we can just annoy the politicians <laughs> that still take it because it's it's really our our only priority should be people not the profits of these companies because they're going to profit we don't need politicians in in congress making sure that their profit keeps growing yeah, I'm with you 100% there. And one thing that's so interesting about all of these campaigns, like yours included, is you're being principled and you're rejecting all corporate PAC money. This is just a people-powered campaign. But on the flip side, it's difficult because you are disadvantaging yourself. But money is so corrosive and corrupting that you have to reject that money in order to really prove to people that, you know, you will represent them and not any special interest. So let me ask you this. What has been the response to people and constituents when, you know, you've told them about the fact that you're not taking any money? What do they say to that? Does that really resonate with them? Because I feel like whenever I see a candidate who is not taking corporate money, my first thought is, okay, this is someone who's just principled. If they disagree with me on a policy issue, it's because of their, you know, genuine feelings, not because they're being bankrolled by some corporate lobby, you know? So Mm -hmm. what have people said when you told them about this? Well, the straight, the, I guess not really strange. It's, it's not that unexpected, but we have been knocking on doors and phone banking and, um, I know that last election, a very small portion of the eligible voters showed up to the polls. And what we're finding out is that not a lot of people know who their representative is. And, you know, I think it is time that someone who's just an average everyday resident who struggles with the exact same things that everyone else does runs and represents the people because that's what they deserve. And so I... I get to start from scratch with people that don't know who their congressional representative is and explain why I'm running and what I'm so passionate about changing and that I am only taking influence from people because that's my only priority. So the reaction is that I get to start fresh with this whole new group of people. And that's really great. Like I can only imagine that that really leaves a strong impression. Now, Mm. speaking of impressions, assuming you win, 
you will probably be, you know, the fifth or hopefully the 30th member of the squad. So everyone <laughs> knows that, you know, as soon as you win, there's going to be the Fox News segments. There's another socialist out of New York. So let me ask you this, because when you're in Congress, there's going to be a lot of forces that will come at you. You're inevitably going to face marginalization from your own party. There's going to be, you know, that mm -hmm. centrist corporate wing who will be trying to get you to shut up, basically, because you're making them look bad, you know, because they're taking corporate money uh, and you're not. And then there's also going to be, you know, Fox News, the conservatives who will basically just demonize you so much. So how do you deal with that when you're in Congress? I know this is difficult to think like, you know, two to three steps ahead, but how do you stay true when there's going to be all these forces in your ear? Because, you know, people are going to send you in really hoping that you're going to just come in swinging. So how, what do you do? And just from a psychological standpoint, when you have all of these people just screaming at you, you know, who are powerful, how do you think you just from an individual standpoint personally can like stay true and um, thwart those forces, at least mentally, because that's the biggest hurdle, I think. <laughs> that's, a, that's actually a great question. And I can't say that it hasn't already started, but I will tell you why. <laughs> I am so confident. <sighs> so I, I'll tell you something. And I... I don't know if you noticed from my website or the articles that came out, but I also have a day job because I can't afford to not work right now. And you'll see a lot of other progressive candidates that are doing this two, two times full-time commitment in order to still pay for their rent and have health insurance while they're campaigning at night. And uh, right now I'm a project manager. I work at a big bank and I watch a spreadsheet that makes sure that they're following all the current banking regulations. And I'm running as, I'm running as a, a you know, democratic socialist. And that's not necessarily the most popular, <laughs> uh, not necessarily the most popular way to be in the banking sector. But here I am. I'm very public about it. I have a very public stance about wanting to reinstate the Glass-Steagall Act, which would happen to break up my employer. That's my personal, it's my personal position that that's the right thing to do. And I'm on record with you right now saying that. Um, <laughs> so so uh, I'm, there is no other version of me. I'm a comedian. I perform in basements of Irish pubs. <laughs> uh, and comedy clubs and then I go to work as a project manager and I run for Congress and what I am saying that I represent is is very deeply rooted in in who I am and what what where I come from and what I want for the country and I'm doing this out of a passion for change and there is no amount of money first of all I'm rejecting it, so it would be zero. <laughs> but there is no amount of money that anyone can throw at me to get me to change my mind on what I represent. And I'm sorry to uh, anyone who disagrees with the fact that I am a democratic socialist, but in my mind, that is not... I just... I want to just make it clear that to me, democratic socialism means the prioritization of people. And we claim to live in a capitalist society, but here we are bailing out big banks and subsidizing factory farms, which 
are one of the main contributors to greenhouse gases. We subsidize the fossil fuel industry. All of these industries that are continuing to decrease the health of our country and, uh, and, and continue to break the things that we urgently need to fix, that's socialism that we're subsidizing it. We're just subsidizing the wrong things in my opinion. So if we can bail out banks and subsidize fossil fuels and subsidize all of these evils, I'll go ahead and say, we can subsidize people. And that's what the priority should be. And we should end subsidy. We should, we should stop subsidizing things like fossil fuels because that's killing us, literally. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I want single-payer Medicare for all because I got a $500 bill for getting a biopsy the other week and uh, my I wasn't going to not get it but I am insured you know because I do still work full time and you know if I'm insured and get that kind of bill then without insurance it probably would have been like $14,000 and who the heck can afford that I'm struggling to pay $500 yeah. so there are so many things broken and it doesn't matter if you make me a meme or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a stand-up comedian, so I'm you're used the to com- being heckled anyway. <laughs> yeah, you make the memes. You're the comedian. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but honestly, I, I would be tickled if I become a meme and people like point their fingers and say I'm a socialist because I am. I love, okay, I love that. And you just got a lot more cool points. Um, not that you didn't already have them. But I just, because it's like, when you explain that, that we already have socialism, it's just for the rich, and then rugged individualism for the poor, if we're quoting MLK. I feel like that's not a disputable point, because all these issues that we talk about, the lowest common denominator is always money in healthcare. Why is it so bad? Well, because of the profit motive. Private prisons, uh, you know, they're the reason why it's difficult to get real criminal justice reform. Every single issue goes back to money and we prioritize profits over people. So when you come out and say, I'm a democratic socialist, what that says to me is, okay, you have adequately diagnosed the problem. I trust (laughs) that you now can come up with the solutions. So that's why I feel like I love that we're seeing progressives move away from the term progressive and on some more mm-hmm. democratic socialists, because I don't know if you've noticed this, and maybe I'm just like hypersensitive to this, but I do think it's happening. Like the term progressive has been co-opted. Like even someone who's like a corporate centrist Democrat <laughs> says, oh no, no, I'm progressive. And it just yeah. it drives me nuts. And now I love that we have our own term and that it's really become popularized due to Bernie Sanders and AOC. Um, because they're too afraid to call themselves socialists. So you can kind of like separate the the real people from the people who just want to get you to think that they're progressive when they're taking money from corporate lobbyists and whatnot. So mm-hmm. it's just, I love that you identify as a democratic socialist. And so far, every candidate I've talked to this season, I believe, um, maybe excluding one, identifies, you know, very vocally as a democratic socialist. And I see all of this and it's just, it's amazing because it's like, I see change before my very eyes. But at the same time, I'm frustrated because it's not happening fast enough, but you still see it. So there's hope. So one thing that I really, I think is important is one of your biggest obstacles besides not taking corporate money and that disadvantaging you is cynicism. People are apathetic, they're ambivalent, and they've just kind of tuned out of politics because they feel like 
it's hopeless. You know, it's it's going to be a Republican who screws them over or a Democrat who's better on some issues, but still, by and large, is probably going to side with the big bangs as opposed to them. So how do you overcome that? Because I feel like one thing that a candidate has to do is get that voter motivated to come out and vote for them. So what have you seen, one, in terms of like cynicism and two, have you come up with any strategies that you can share that have been, you know, conducive to getting people excited to come out. I mean, we don't know yet because the, you know, the primary hasn't taken place. But um, mm-hmm. what do you think you can do to overcome that? Because I feel like it's such a huge issue, and I, I, I get why people are, you know, not motiv- motivated. Yeah, I, I mean, I understand the cynicism, and I think in the last debate, was it Marianne who brought up? Why would anyone in Flint vote for any of us? Because we haven't helped them. So I get it. And I I get why people in Flint wouldn't, wouldn't even be watching the Democratic debates because they're worried about their children having lead poisoning and no one's there to help them. So the thing is, a lot of people have been ignored and they've slipped through the cracks and representatives have not done a thing in order to change the situations and lift people up from uh, poverty and from, you know, everyday issues that people face that keep them struggling. And I get it. Um, and it's up to people like me that, in my opinion, are running to change things and to actually represent everyone, to knock on every single door that we can and call every person and reach out and ask them what they're concerned about and make sure that we listen because there are still, you know, even you said uh, our, our platforms are pretty comprehensive, but I'm learning about new struggles that people are facing in the district every day. So I want to know about those and I will take them home with me and figure out a way to fight for people. So I just was at uh, an event yesterday when someone told me that they uh, went to a university in my district and they thought they had a scholarship, but it ended up being a scam. And they contacted uh, our current representative and nothing came out of it. And so people are telling me everything that they've been struggling with and how representatives and city representatives, federal, state, have failed them. And I want to know everything because I I actually want to make a difference and not to put more profit into companies' hands, but I want to make a difference for people who've been ignored until now. And that's really important. And I wanted you to actually talk about Carolyn Maloney because one other disadvantage um, that I think candidates like you have in running against someone who's relatively unknown nationally is that, you know, um, people may think, well, I like Lauren. I like what she's saying. But there are other candidates who are running against the really big dogs. Like, you know, you have Michaela Wilkes going against Denny Hoyer and Shahid Buttar going against Nancy Pelosi. So why mm-hmm. is it that we need to get you in there as opposed to Carolyn Maloney? Why are you two different? So we're different because of everything that I represent and what I'm fighting for. Um, and I do not take the corporate and super PAC money. And Carolyn Maloney takes a lot of it. 
And I really urge everyone to look whenever they're voting or donating, look at who donates to the politicians. Do they need your money? <laughs> because a lot of them don't. And, um, you know, we have a lot of differences. For example, I am for term limits. And that would also include term limits for myself. And uh, I, I believe that we should be making sure that new energy and new ideas make it into Congress. And the longer that, uh, that people serve, the further and further away they get from the everyday issues that people face. And Carolyn Maloney has been in office since uh, 1993. And a lot of people do feel very ignored by her. And I know that she uh, does fight for women's rights. But one of the ways that I would like to make a huge difference for women's rights is to close the wage gap. And one way that I would like to do that is uh, we as a campaign have come up with something called the Even the Playing Field Act. And that actually would require lar every single large employer, which we are uh, putting at 250 and more employees, would have to state publicly a salary range for every single job advertisement. So a lot of the times you and I, if we're applying to jobs, you spend a lot of time tweaking your resume and writing a cover letter, and then you apply and hope to hear back. A lot of times you just don't. But if you do, the inevitable question comes up, what are you expecting to get paid? <laughs> and if you shoot too high, then you're out of, you're out of luck. That's the end of the road, probably. And if you shoot too low, then you screwed yourself. And I want there to be full transparency because I want to make sure that I'm not going to waste my time applying to a job that is way out of the range that I'm looking for. And I also want to make sure that no one else applying to the job would get paid a different range than me because of their gender or uh you know, I don't want someone to get paid less because of their sexual orientation or race or religion or anything. So what you see in that range is what every single person would would be able to be offered. And that is a real idea about how to close the wage gap. And I haven't heard creative things like that from her. And I, you know, I do work in the banking sector and the Glass-Steagall Act is something I would like to bring back. Uh, in, a, in a modernized way. However, uh, she was part of its repeal in 1999. So whenever you look at someone's donation history and uh, who pays attention to them, it says a lot about who uh, expects a return on their investment from them. And she does take corporate PAC money right now, and that begs a lot of questions, yeah. in my opinion. No Absolutely, and rightfully so. But let me just say this. For everyone watching, Lauren just proposed legislation and she's not even in Congress yet. So, I mean, that says something. Like, we need people who are hungry and eager to fight. And I feel like you're just preaching to the choir. So let's let people know what we can do if we want to get you elected. How can we help um, if we're watching across the country and I don't live in New York 12? What can I do to support you? Can I phone bank? And tell us where we can donate as well. Yeah, so if you go to laurenashcraft.com, uh, L-A-U-R-E-N, 
A-S-H-C-R-A-F-T.com. Uh, there's an unavoidable orange donate button. And we would love if you use it because we are trying to get big money out of politics. And the only influence that I have is you. So uh, it's really annoying and I get it. <laughs> but we need money to fight big money uh, and to continue our uphill battle. So every donation makes a huge difference. We're looking to make some of our first hires. So that will help a lot of our very passionate volunteers out and uh, help us move in the right direction. So thank you. Yeah, laurenoshkap.com. You can also, uh, there's easy ways to reach out to me through the website as well. And if there is something that I have not advocated for or an issue that you aren't seeing raised, I would love to hear about it. So please do stay in touch with me. I check the email and uh, yeah, donate if you can. Even small recurring donations make a huge difference in our campaign. Well, and thank you. And let me make a pitch because I'm trying to really get people aware of the fact that you're part of a national movement. And this th isn't just about New York 12. Like I always use the example of Ilhan Omar. She just proposed full student loan debt cancellation. I'm in Oregon. She may not be in my state and may not be my representative, but if her bill becomes law, that affects me personally in a really meaningful way. So this isn't just about New York 12. Lauren is fighting for you, even if you're not in her district. So if you could chip in a dollar, if that's all you have, it really does go a long way because every single penny counts when you are taking on a machine politically. And when Carolyn has been in Congress since 1993, she is entrenched. Everyone's on her side. You know, the special interests are coming to her defense. So it's incumbent on us to come to the defense of candidates like Lauren who are going to fight for us. So please donate. Uh, LaurenAshcraft.com. Is that it? Yeah. Okay, I want to yeah. make sure. I almost said <laughs> VoteAshcraft.com, but I was like, wait, no, that doesn't sound right because I was just on the website. Actually, we we did buy that URL too. So. <laughs> good, good. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but I do, I do want to just echo that I am just part of this movement and the more of us that get into office, the faster you can see this kind of change. So I love, yes, small donations to all of us make a huge difference and I would love to get in there with the other democratic socialists and true progressives that want to fight for the same things because that's a whole block of votes that we can actually use to do things like get this big money out of politics. So I'm really excited to be part of this wave that politicians like Carolyn Maloney have not been openly supportive of. So, Yeah, yeah, we yeah. need to broaden the squad. That's what it's about. Uh, make that block so big, so vocal that we actually have some real power in this country. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much, Lauren. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Hopefully everyone will donate. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's all that I've got for you guys today. Thank you so much to my guest, Lauren Ashcraft. And thank you to everyone who actually watched all the way up until this point. To hear me talk that long is definitely a skill. <laughs> So I truly appreciate it. Thank you all so much. If you want to support the show, you can go to humanistreport.com slash support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanist report or click join underneath any one of our YouTube videos. That is all. Uh, my name is Mike Figueredo. I will see you all next week. Take care, everyone.